Welcome back to City on the Edge. It's been a minute since we uh, we were recording and releasing these things, but with this episode, we officially begin our return to the podcasting waves. Um, that's not a metaphor that makes any sense, and I'm aware of that. I'm not even sure whether I mean ocean waves or, or radio waves, however... Uh, it's clear to say that podcasts don't have either of those waves. Um, regardless, we are back, and uh, we have been gone for about two months, a bit of a break. Um, during that time, we actually did two live shows, uh, both of which you're going to be hearing over the next couple of weeks here. This episode will be the more successful of the two. This is uh, Black Lives in New Mexico where we talk about uh, the history of, of African-Americans and, and people of African uh, descent in New Mexico over the last 500 years or so. It was a great turnout. A lot of people came. We heard some cool stories. Um, however, I, I do want to point out, you know, by no means was this an exhaustive uh, survey of the subject. Um, in fact, there are some glaring omissions, which uh, we will rectify at another time. Um, most prominent, I think, is that we didn't talk about Blackdom, New Mexico, uh, which is just, you, you should learn about it. It, it was a, an African-American community post-Civil War uh, in southern New Mexico near, near Roswell. We'll get into that. We'll get into the, uh, the history of the Boyers. And I didn't quite get a chance to finish my story about uh, civil rights in Albuquerque. Um, but, you know, it's like you, you got a you got a live show and you're trying to cover a lot of ground and an hour and a half goes by just like that. So uh, th that's what happened there. Um, otherwise, coming up next uh, in a couple of weeks here, probably actually just one week, um, we'll have our ill-fated beer history in Albuquerque show, which uh, nobody involved with could actually hear. Um, however, it, it, it actually was a... The recording quality was surprisingly good, and actually there's some good information from our guest uh, that week, uh, Chris Jackson, so we will be releasing that sometime soon, and it's it's kind of an amusing thing to listen to as well. As always, thank you to our Patreon donors. Uh, without you guys, we would have stopped doing this long ago, um, and also thank you to those of you who, who listen. Uh, the Patreon donors have uh, they, they've they've covered the cost of our uh, various subscriptions that we have, both for like our website and for our Albuquerque Journal. Um, I'm sorry, not Albuquerque Journal, Vintage Newspaper uh, access and this kind of thing. So we've we've been able to do some really fantastic research as a result of the uh, the contributions that you guys have made. So thank you so much for that. And with that. We are now going to begin a look at our live show, uh, Black Lives in New Mexico, with our special guest host, Maria Erin Jones. Maria, yeah. oh. why don't you tell us what your, uh, what your plan with this was and what, what made you... Uh, what made you call us and, My, and why how you, this is all worked out? Why did out? you do this? <laughs> That's what you're saying. Why did, why did you do this? 
Um, well, I'll I'll tell you. I was um, I was over at um, one of the the local nonprofits uh, in town, and I was just kind of you know looking at the walls. This is probably a year ago, um, and there was a picture on the wall of black folks on a Sunday uh, in the front of a church in a beautiful. You know, probably I don't know. I, I wish I could. I wish I knew where this church was. I don't even know if it is, exists anymore. The, the picture was probably from the twenties, um, and it was the most amazing thing I'd I'd seen. And I just wanted to know who everybody, who everybody was in that picture. Um, I've lived in New Mexico for on and off for twenty five years, and um, I know that that as it stands right now, that black people represent 3% of the population and black women represent 1% of the population. So there, I mean, let that set in, 3% of the entire population of, of the state of New Mexico and then 1% look like me. So there are days where I could go, you know, days without seeing anyone who looks like me. And so that, so if you think about that, that, that kind of, changes the way the world kind of looks to you, you know, um, and maybe even how you experience the world. So when I saw that photograph, um, it just, it, one, it shocked me. It's not that I didn't know that, that black people live in New Mexico. I was just like, there is a history that is so rich that we don't, we are walking amongst the, the, the you know, ancestors. We're walking amongst, um, uh, people who who are f family members of folks in that photo, you know. So a, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, because it was a little scary, you know. It was like, th these are these are ghosts saying, remember us, and I I think tonight we're not even going to get close, but but I think we're opening the door to more conversations and dialogue, and you know. More, just more discussions about um, about who we all are, you know. I think we're I think we're in a in a point um, in our in our culture that um, I think it's important to acknowledge where we where we've been, you know. If we don't remember that, then we don't know where we're headed. So um, so that's why I came to a city city on the edge. Um, really excited by the fact that you have a podcast. You have longevity. You keep doing it. You have a passion for it. <laughs> anyway, so so um, so I I've, I've worked with Ty before. Ty has been an editor for me um, at at the Alibi before, and I'm good friends with Mike. And I just met Nora and taught a zine workshop at her class. So I feel like I've got some friends up here, and I just approached them about doing this this podcast, and they said yes. So we've been kind of you know cramming and trying to you know tease out information, and we're hoping to to tease out information from you in the audience tonight, so that we can further the conversation and and keep reaching out. Yeah, this won't be like a, a totally passive event. You're actually you might have to come up and talk if you've got a good story to share. So uh, just just keep that in mind for later on. We we understand that we're just going to be scratching the surface here tonight. We're going to just mainly try to talk about the, the through line of African um, American history in this area for about the last 500 years. And obviously that means we're not going to be able to tell all the, all the really great stories that have happened uh, during that time. But we just, we want to honor and acknowledge 
um, the things that we've learned ourselves over the, these past few months and also be open to learning more um, by the end of tonight. We hope that we've learned something as well. So, And we'll definitely be doing follow-up podcasts on other stories that we learn about and that we couldn't talk about in depth tonight. So go subscribe to our podcast. <laughs> so this, this is maybe kind of off because we're recording this, but if we could take just one second just to acknowledge the, the land that we're on right now, just acknowledge what's underneath our feet, um, who it belongs to, and that we're guests here. So just take a minute, not even a minute, a second, just to let that flash across your mind. Thank you. Okay, so I thought um, we should start at the, uh, at the beginning. And when I say the beginning, I don't mean the beginning of history in New Mexico, because that's long, long, long before um, non-natives came here. Uh, instead, we're going to start around the early 16th century. And um, Mike, I understand that you were, uh, you were looking into one of the earliest people of, uh, of non-native descent to come to the New Mexico area at all. Right. Well, this guy should probably be considered, um, you know, one of the major discoverers of New Mexico. I mean, obviously, how, much, how can you discover a place where there are already people? But um, Esteban, also known as Esteban the Moor, also known as, uh, let's see, there's a million uh, other... Uh, uh, aliases he has here, Esteban de Dorantes, though that name sucks because Dorantes was the guy that bought him. Um, uh, Esteban the Moor, Estevanico. He was also known as Mustafa Zamori, which is interesting. Um, but this guy was born in 1500, and he was enslaved almost from birth by the Portuguese. And um, he, uh, by the, let's see, when was it? By, by 1527, he was sold to a rich guy from Spain, and um, was soon involved in this expedition to the New World. They were going to colonize Florida. And um, by, let's see, uh, 1528, uh, they were in Florida, and they were... They, uh, he was not the, the first uh, African man to, to be in Florida. There was another guy, um, Juan Garrido from Angola, he was in Florida in 1513, but he was one of the first, probably. Though, who knows? These things are so spottily documented that there could have been a number of, of people. But Esteban was from uh, Morocco, and uh, he was probably born Muslim. Um, he uh, was, was um, probably forced to convert to Catholicism in order to take part of this, this first expedition uh, that, that went out. It was the... Um, well, it was the Durantes uh, expedition, uh, and Durantes was the, was the guy that had, had bought him. But uh, the, the trip did not go well, and after a little while, there were four out of 300 people left, and uh, Esteban was one of the people. And so they were stuck there in Florida, and North America was like a very hostile place to people not from here at the time. It was, I mean, you know, it, it, the land was so extreme, and nobody knew what, they, what was out there and what they were going to encounter. And um, they basically just traveled over land. They were hoping to eventually get to some sort of um, uh, Spanish settlement somewhere. And um, they eventually made it to Mexico City. But along the way, the things that happened were just incredible. At one point, Esteban and the people he was with, Cabeza de Vaca is kind of the most high-profile 
Spaniard that was with them at the time. And um, along the way, they became medicine men and kind of became celebrities. They would go between the towns with like these huge processions of like 300 people all like so excited about it. Yeah, I kind of gathered that was sort of like a, like a gimmick that they had adopted to basically for right. survival. They, they were right. like, well, we, the Cabeza right. de Vaca expedition and Esteban, they all looked pretty different than right. the, the natives there. So they really just kind of owned it and were like, yeah, we're holy men and we're going right. to heal. And that's how they managed to survive the trek across right. Texas. Because before that, they were enslaved a bunch, and it was really <laughs> horrible sounding. It would make such a good movie. I've always thought that Cabeza de Vaca, Cabeza de Vaca Esteban's story would, would, would just be an awesome film. Because at one point, they were trying to like make it in homemade rafts, and all the rafts were wrecking, and they were stuck on these islands forever off the coast of Texas. I mean, there was just crazy stuff happening. Um, but... Uh, so, well, it's true. And I think it's so interesting that he was Muslim before he was forced to uh, become Catholic because, you know, you hear a lot in New Mexico about the whole crypto-Jew movement, that a lot of people were Jewish, but Jews were so persecuted in Spain under Ferdinand and Isabella that a lot of them converted to Christianity to just escape that. And it makes me wonder, like, are there crypto-Muslims in New Mexico and in know. the Southwest as well? Like, I mean, it, <laughs> if, if people were being forced to convert and, you know, they're, they're actually... I, I don't know this, I haven't researched that, but super interesting. Um, but uh, so what's really interesting is they made it to Mexico City and the whole like seven cities of gold thing came from Esteban and his crew. Like they were t talking about the great wealth and the things that they had seen and experienced and all that. And it was a pretty damaging uh, myth as, as, <laughs> as, as time went on. But, um, you know, he, he, was, he was there at ground, ground zero of that. But I think it's also really interesting what ended up happening uh, to Esteban. There, he may have been killed by natives at Zuni Pueblo. Well, like, but what, first, he came back to, to Mexico oh, yeah, City. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, shoot. Oh, yeah, I'm getting that story of yeah, With yeah. the story of Cibola. So he, right. So he gets to Mexico yeah. City, and, um, and they've got these stories of all this wealth. It's starting to get everybody really excited about uh, going back into this territory and checking it out and finding... the Spanish finding were like, well, we already took yeah. all the gold from, like, the Aztecs, right. the Incas, and it would be great if we just, just like, take more and more gold right. all the time. And if they've got gold up there, we want it to, right? Right, yeah. Um, so in 1539, a year before Coronado uh, comes into this valley, um, with, with the expedition of Fray Marcos de Nisa, I think the name was, they ended up around Zuni Pueblo in the Zuni city of Hakina. And there, Esteban was either killed or came up with like an amazing trick with the people of the Pueblo to help him gain his freedom and escape from the people that had re-enslaved him. Yeah, that's like what I like. That, that's, that's definitely the story that I like, too. If, uh, if they're going to fictionalize a movie version, that's got to be what's happened. But I would not put it past the people of Zuni Pueblo at the time because they, like, they were like a tricksterish, playful yeah. bunch. They, like, pro that was like part of the local identity. Like, I love, there was this white anthropologist met long later who came to, uh, to Zuni Pueblo in the 1800s, and he wanted to like, learn all their dances and learn all their ways and everything that had happened. And I think they were just making stuff up to mess with him. I mean, it, seriously, like, well, it, is, there, is there a, is there like a, anything about Esteban? Is there, a, you know, any songs, any, anything, you know, you know, he, he is woefully underrepresented in like the, I mean, you see the, the, the members of the Coronado and Oñate and uh, other expeditions all over this city everywhere. And some of them are frankly not 
deserving to have their name slapped on stuff. I mean, Alvarado, how much stuff is named after Alvarado? And that guy was like all about sticking dogs on Native Americans and garroting and just tons of violence. I mean, and, uh, you know, whereas you have this, this guy who was like one of the very first uh, non-natives here in New Mexico, and his name is just on almost nothing. It's just like, where is it? Well, what's, what's named after him in Albuquerque? I mean, he was almost certainly the first non-native in, uh, in the area around Zuni because he was actually leading the vanguard of that expedition with some natives um, from the Mexico area the Spaniards were hanging back and kind of seeing how things were going to go with Esteban and his crew. So the idea was that he was going to go to these villages and he was going to send back a cross to uh, Fray Marquez, who was um, a friar. And the bigger the cross, supposedly, the more like wealthy and well-to-do the village that he, he was going to. So he made it to Zuni, for sure. He went in, he sent out a huge cross to Fray Marquez, and then that was the last they ever heard of him. Um, and so Fray Marquez, realizing that his little expedition wouldn't possibly stand a chance against uh, you know, the, a fortified city like Zuni, just hightailed it right back to, uh, to Mexico City and assumed that Esteban had been, had been killed. Um, like I said, we really don't know. There's this oral tradition uh, that um, an anthropologist named Cushing encountered uh, in the late 1800s that said that a man with dark skin had been killed at Zuni at some point. But um, that's it. Like, we, we really have no idea. And I, I do love the idea that maybe he sought his freedom. I think it's really interesting that of the members of the Cabeza de Vaca expedition who survived the trip back to Mexico City, he was the only one who was willing to go back into that northern territory. And you got to kind of wonder what his thinking was. It was like, do I want to go back to the life of, you know, a slave in Mexico under the Spanish, or do I want to, like, lead an expedition north? You kind of wonder if maybe he didn't see his chance and take it. Wild. It's a great, it's a really interesting story, and he's a really interesting person. And there's a really cool book about him. It's, it's uh, fictionalized, but it's called The Moor's Account, and it's uh, a very well-reviewed uh, literary work. Here it is. Uh, by Lila Lailama, Pulitzer Prize finalist. Um, I started reading it. It's really cool. Um, yeah, but, but there's just not enough about Esteban. It's really well, and we. Okay, thanks. Can we assume that more enslaved Africans were brought over by the Spanish? Absolutely. But we yes. don't know their stories as well as Esteban? We, we don't know their stories. We know that the, the Spaniards in their um, invasion of, uh, of the New Mexico area certainly brought, you know, they brought slaves and also uh, people... Um, who formed kind of the backbone of the uh, the colonists were often intermarrying at that point with um, with people from northern Africa, and so it was. It's certainly uh, likely, and it's definite that people of African descent came to New Mexico with some of the first colonists. They're not well represented in the history or anything like that, but they were certainly there. Well, maybe there's a record of Esteban um, in Spain. You know, it, it perhaps maybe, you know, in, in the ledger, we were talking about this, you know, um, maybe somewhere in the, in the ledger, the, the diaries, some, someplace, but maybe not in, in our possession, but, you know, yeah, maybe. it could be buried, yeah. buried somewhere in mm -hmm. the archives of Spain. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so certainly there were, 
there were people of African descent coming with the colonists. Um, and I believe uh, Spain actually abolished the slave trade uh, by the early 19th century, um, before, before the United States of America did. Um, and so by the time New Mexico was made into a territory of the United States, um, slavery was illegal here, even if it might have been happening uh, de facto with some of the Native American groups, it was, it was uh, legally not allowed. Um, However, in 1856, with the, uh, with the uh, Mexican-American War, um, New Mexico was made a territory of the US, and suddenly slavery is brought back. Um, and Americans do come here, some of whom have slaves, but also uh, people who um, are free. Uh, free African-Americans come to the territory, and find that the lower population and the greater amount of space affords them a certain amount of freedom. However, according to the law uh, that was set in 1856, um, black people were actually not allowed to stay in New Mexico for more than 30 days at a time. And if they did, they had to pay $200 to ensure their good behavior. Um, like I said, this was on the books, but not often prosecuted at that point. Um, and uh, intermarriage was also a crime at that point. What year was that again? That was 1856. In 1850, the census had that 22 African-Americans lived in New Mexico. Really? Yeah. Wow. 22. <laughs> 22. Wow. Um, in 1860, of course, everything changes. The, uh, the Civil War has begun. Uh, New Mexico is actually a Union territory at the, uh, at the beginning of the war, um, but it gets invaded by the Texans. And if you ever want to know why New Mexico has an issue with the Texans, like, it's in the history. Texas just kind of keeps claiming New Mexico. So um, at this point, a bunch of uh, Texas volunteers led by General Sibley invade New Mexico, decide that they are, their plan is to conquer the territory between Texas and California, and then that's just gonna bankroll the Confederacy with all the mineral deposits and timber and that sort of thing. They get as far as, uh, as New Mexico, they march up, they establish a base in Albuquerque, um, and then they march up north to Santa Fe, they actually take over Santa Fe because the Union, uh, soldiers who were there were not really prepared to fend them off yet, so they just kind of kept retreating until they get to Glorieta um, at the Pigeon Ranch, at which point the New Mexico, uh, New Mexico soldiers, Union soldiers, uh, and Colorado volunteers um, get together and resist the, uh, the Confederacy. The Confederates actually win that battle, but a group of New Mexicans sneak behind their lines and set fire to their uh, their supply wagons. So even though, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great moment. Um, so they, they wind up having won every battle, but uh, they don't have any more supplies. And by this point, General Sibley has, it's become clear that he has a major drinking problem. And in fact, um, every battle that he was participating, like he was present for, he was supposedly drunk in a wagon of his own. So um, he had very little to do with any of the successes that were happening. So at that point, the, ar the, uh, the army of uh, the Confederacy 
winds up retreating all the way back to Texas. Um, but one thing that I think is kind of cool during that time period is that the Confederates, again, they were bringing, they were bringing slaves with them. And several different uh, of these uh, men saw opportunities along the way to break free and hightail out, out of there. One of them that we have on record is, um, so Colonel Thomas Green was a commander of the 5th Regiment of the, uh, the Texas Cavalry. He brought 10 slaves with him um, to New Mexico. And he, uh, he had one servant in particular that was kind of like his, uh, his, his kind of bodyguard and everything. Um, they made it just to the Rio Grande, at which point this guy grabbed uh, Colonel Green's horse and started fleeing south to Mexico. Uh, Colonel Green sent people to chase him. They got a little ways, and then they just gave up. The, te the terrain was going to be too difficult, and so that guy hightailed it out of there, and that was that. Was that. There are other so basically, that happened at the Allsup's. <laughs> I mean, I mean, pr pretty much. We're talking about where where El Modelo is. Um, there was a civil war battle right there. Right. So that was you the, know, so yeah. just right over the bridge. So what you're talking about is like I'm going to hightail it from, you know, right yeah. here near Pop Fizz yes. and run <laughs> as fast there as I can. <laughs> so we're, I mean, that just, it's just another another indication that we're like we're in the we're right. living in this history. It's These it's all around us. You know. Absolutely happened here. So. Um, so that, that was the Civil War, and a, and a spoiler alert, the, the North won, and uh, slavery was declared illegal. Real quick, we did a whole episode on the Civil War in yeah, Albuquerque, if you want to listen to that. Um, but, uh, and, and so, uh, so Maria, I understand you were, you were looking into some of the Africans, who, uh, the people of African descent, um, who came to the territory in the in the days after the Civil War, right, the Buffalo Soldiers and Cowboys. I was, I, I was, and um, and it's kind it's kind of interesting because New Mexico didn't become a state until um, 1912. We were we we're looking this up, um, January the sixth, 1912. So it was a territory, and basically, where were the where were these borders? You know, um, so when we're talking about about black folks who were who were um, you know buffalo soldiers and becoming cowboys, they were they were crossing borders, you know. So it's it's really difficult to say everybody's pinpointed in in one place. I mean, Mary Fields was um, one of the first postal workers, and she carried um, you know the the U.S. mail um, across you know across borders into territories and things like that. There's no way that she didn't come here. You know, so we, so we, we, ha we know that, you know what I mean, as that Albuquerque and Santa Fe being the, the towns that they are, like, you know, she would go north to Nevada, you know, um, go to Virginia City, which is where the, um, the Comstock load is, is what actually paid for the Civil War. So um, that's it. That's in Nevada. But what, it, is, what is that? It's a, it's a silver, silver ore. Okay. Um, it was a huge load of silver ore that was found. So basically, it's it's difficult to draw, to draw really really hard and fast lines in in terms of, in terms of history. Um, but there's like there are all kinds of all kinds of folks. Um, 
I want to just mention the Buffalo Soldiers Society that that's that's here. There's and there's reenactments. So um, so there are um, uh, descendants who are um, doing reenactments, and it, and so I think that's pretty exciting. And you can you can kind of um, look that up. Um, there were the the na the word the name Buffalo Soldier pretty much came from an observation of Native Americans seeing these these soldiers you know these these like woolly haired dark soldiers who were um, who seemed to uh, they were un unstoppable no matter no matter how hard the work was no matter the injuries um, they just kept going and so it was like a term um, of strength as well yeah yeah absolutely um, I, I this is a quote by Emily Dickinson but um, the wounded deer leaps the highest mm. so that's kind of the the notion that um, that they were identified by their their ability to to continue to to press on. So Buffalo Soldier is a is is you know an amalgam of 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 that. Um, they they worked and lived under terrible conditions. Um, we think of we think of of there's a, there's the romanticism of the west and of cowboys and of soldiers you know they they were given horses that were about to be put out to pasture oh, okay. yeah. um, and if they weren't given a horse they they walked you know um, the reason you can drive through the redwoods uh, of california is because of of these men um, in these companies who carved their way who, who carved the roads through there? So um, it it wasn't it wasn't only that they were um, uh, strong in terms of their 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 fighting. They they actually helped to um, to to build what we know of as as America and for for better or or for for worse. And we know that, that there's a lot to um, there's a lot to uh, account uh, and own mm -hmm. about that. Um, so. That's 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 sure. just something to, to kind of to keep in mind. I mean, they built Fort Baird. Um, they they protected stagecoaches as they were going through. They protected you know money that was going you know going across borders and things like that. Uh, they guarded white officers. Um, they obviously dealt with a lot of racism. They would go into into towns like Deming and get either run out of town or or hung for you know or killed you know, anything. Um, so it was a lot of it was a lot of determination to con to continue. Um, and one of the things I want to mention, and this was kind of hard about this this section of of history, when we're talking about um, the Indian Wars and we're talking about those battles, um, that 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 is a there is really something to be healed there, and it's difficult to talk about because I don't want to think about um, brown people oppressing other brown people, but w we have to discuss it, you know. And I just want to mention something that happened on sep September 18th, 1870. It was the Ninth Cavalry. Um, they tracked the Apache War Chief Victorio, and Victorio was from Ojo Caliente and had uh, had lost lost his lands, had a band of about, about 60 warriors with him, and he simply wanted to go back home. Um, so the Buffalo Soldiers were, um, were charged with tracking, with tracking him and, and his 60 men, and they, they found him at Animus Creek. So um, there's, a, there's a high ridge on, at Animus Creek, and uh, Victorio and his men were you know, shooting 
downwards at the soldiers below. Um, and so there was a, it was, you know, it was terrifying, I'm sure. You know, bo both, both camps are armed. You know, um, warriors were lost. Uh, white soldiers were lost. Black soldiers were lost. But um, there were two that were um, identified specifically in this. It was called Massacre Canyon. Um, John Denny and Mat Matthias Day. They both received medals of honor for um, for safely carrying wounded soldiers out of out of harm's way. So I I want to think about if I if I'm able to find a way to not justify but maybe clarify some of the things of the past. It would be you know how did we save each other? You know. Um, I don't know what happened to Victorio. Um, I am hoping that um, that that there there are descendants um, who are who are left. But I can also tell you that for every cowboy, every white cowboy we know about, there are ten black cowboys we don't know about. And if you know Billy the Kid was hanging out, you know he bought a drink for Deadwood Dick, you know, in a bar you know, in New Mexico, that that story's not gonna be anywhere mm -hmm. that we know of, so. So who's, who's Deadwood Dick? Deadwood Dick. Besides the possessor of the best name I've ever heard. The best damn name <laughs> I've ever heard. Um, let me just get my papers out. And while um, you're doing that, yeah. I found, um, I gotta get my, my mic. You guys look so cool with your mics I gotta hold out. my mic, because it mic. just makes, it makes all this like noise when I, I like grab um, A Buffalo soldier who was really unique and who, ended her time in New Mexico was a woman, a former slave, Cathay Williams, and she went by William Cathay. And so she pretended to be a man, um, was in the 38th U.S. Infantry, and it sounds like she didn't see battle. She did, um, you know, work uh, with the infantry, more at the base camp. Um, and she did have different illnesses, and so it was at Fort Bayard, which you mentioned, um, where she got sick, and then the surgeon discovered that she was a woman. So she was discharged um, with a disability, and in the discharged papers, uh, they both her superior and the surgeon refer to her as a he. Mm. So still, you know, concealing her secret, and then she went and um, then was, you know, lived as a woman, as her Cathay, Cathay and um, did some housework for a colonel in the area and then ended up moving to Colorado, but no one's really sure what became of her and when she died exactly, but yeah, an wow, important buffalo soldier, yeah. <laughs> yeah kind wow. Of amazing. Wow. That's interesting. Um, yeah, well, okay, well, um, Deadwood Dick was, uh, was a cowboy um, born in South Dakota, and uh, born, well, moved to South Dakota, but was born on a plantation in Tennessee. Was born, in, born into slavery, um, and then ended up headed, headed west when, when the time was, when it was possible. And I'm gonna just read you a little, a little something. I have this great, um, this book that really never leaves the house. It shouldn't. Um, it's called The Black West, and it's by William Lauren Katz. And it's, a, it's been a, a real resource uh, for all, all manner of, of stories across the West. But I just want to, um, this is something. And he was, he was also called Nat Love. That was, that was another name that he went by. But Deadwood Dick is a, a name he earned, and who knows? I don't know. <laughs> That However you earn that everybody, name. Everybody, <laughs> I mean, everybody had some fancy name, and so somebody's, you know, somebody's got a story for how they got it, and I don't know how he got that one. But um, 
but this is what I, I, I'm reading here. Um, one is impressed, even astounded by love's apparent miraculous invincibility. At one point, he notes, I carry the marks of 14 bullets, bullet wounds on different parts of my body. I'm sorry. <laughs> Channeling. <laughs> on different parts of my body. Most uh, any one of which would be sufficient to kill an ordinary man. Nice. But I am not even crippled. <laughs> uh, anyway, oh wait, this is good though. He says, um, he relates, horses will shot from under me, men killed around me, but always I escaped with a trifling wound at the most. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Can you talk he like that the whole cool. time? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, anyway, so so the so the only connection I could really find is that um, is that Deadwood Dick met Billy the Kid in uh, in Anton Chico. Anton Chico, New Mexico, uh, mm-hmm. where they had where they had a drink, and probably not that one. Probably can't just have one. Right. Huh. Sure. Sure. So. Uh, so yeah. So who knows where that story? My friend used up. to live in a van there. There's not a lot up there. There's like what? there's like a gas station. Right. Well, there used to be yeah, a bar. That, that's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> I guess it's gone uh, now. A bar and a guy you did not want to mess with. I was thinking about what you said about. Um, uh, you know, just how messy it would get sometimes. I mean, when you have colonization, it just seems like the whole country gets caught up in this, like, Stockholm syndrome. I read this book recently called New England Bound, and it was on slavery in, in New England. And uh, just talking about how often it was enslaved Africans that, like, bore the brunt of these uh, white uh, movements into the, you know, into Native American territory. You know, there, there would be these, uh, these counter-colonial uh, episodes of uh, Native Americans coming down and and uh, attacking whatever settlement, and a lot of times it was the slaves that were that were uh, positioned around as like a tactical tactical maneuver, like the first people to get attacked um, that that really bore the brunt like of that. Human, human shields, yeah. kind of thing. And and the Boston Massacre before the American Revolution began, one of the people that was killed in that was a black man who was Christmas had addicts. nothing to do with the cause of you know white people declaring freedom and revolution and all the stuff that was going on at the time. You know, and just was, the book I read on that said that he might have been the first uh, African American uh, victim of police violence in America. Which that was, was <laughs> that was horrible and interesting. Well, and you know the the other thing about like some of some of the lost information about the 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 cowboys and and that history is that pretty much um, cowboy lore kind of just became white in the 19th century. The, those stories just got the you know the those uh, stories just got changed. I mean you know we can we can thank some of the our favorite Western writers. Uh, for that, you know, um, and then John Wayne, and then that's what everybody looks like. But you know, um, the real Lone Ranger was was a was a black man, you know, um, and, and so I I just think this is a great a great opportunity to start re- reclaiming and and just you know uncovering some of those. those Could you groups. expand on that a little bit, uh, the Lone Ranger? I you know I right now I who remembers his name in the in the audience because I was I was I saw a picture of his face and I didn't really include him in this talk because he's not he's yeah. not from New Mexico you know um, but you know he was he was a cowboy. There's a story you know? there. There's a story there. Okay, so Nora, you were looking into a, uh, another uh, another black cowboy in uh, yeah. New Mexico who who made a kind of an impact in a whole other sphere. Mm-hmm. And this was George McJunkin. 
He was an ex-slave from Texas, and he moved to That's northern there. New Mexico. Oh, yeah, there he is. He moved to northern New Mexico to become a cowboy, and he quickly gained a reputation as a really good cowboy, and specifically, he was really good at breaking horses. So he was also known for his curiosity and love of learning, and he set up an exchange where he taught um, cowboys who knew how to read how to break horses, and they taught him how to read. So it was kind of a cool setup. And so he lived in Clayton, New Mexico, and in 1908, there was a big flood, and it was really huge. It caused a lot of damage, and he was out the next day looking in the arroyos, you know, to see what, what the situation was. And he saw these bones that were unearthed, uncovered by this flood. And he was into science and the land and, you know, was pretty familiar with the land and the animals there. And he thought, those look like bison, but they're way too big to be bison bones. And I just feel like these are significant bones. Um, so he left the bones there. He wrote to an expert in Las Vegas, New Mexico, talked to some people in Raton, tried to drum up you know, some interest in someone figuring out what are these bones. Um, and sadly, it wasn't until seven months after his death in 1922 that a group of people came out to look at them and discovered, in fact, that these bones are really significant. They're extinct bison bones. And then even later than that, more significant, well, I shouldn't put humans over animals, so never mind, um, equally as significant, um, they discovered spear points in the bison bones, which meant that humans had been in this area way earlier than they had originally thought. So this was the Folsom Man, and George McJunkin discovered the Folsom site where, you know, this really important anthropological, archaeological discovery was made. Very cool. And Mike, you were looking into a guy who lived uh, a little yeah, closer wait, to... Uh, there's a there's a hand up. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Thank Bass you, Reeves. Bass, Bass Reeves. That's right. I saw that today, and it just kind of like dancing in my head. But I could see his his mustache. He had a very long handlebar mustache. Sorry, go on. Well, I was just gonna, uh, so uh, that's excellent. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, Mike, you were you were you had a story about a guy who little, lived a little closer to us uh, yeah. in Placidus, I believe, right, or near Placidus? Uh, yeah, it's pretty close to that. Uh, at the north end of the mountains, I don't know if if any of you know that that area well. Probably some some of you do. There is a fantastic dirt road that's just lined with ruins. There, it's been kind of one of the obsessions of my life, honestly. Like there is so much neat stuff out there. There are there's the whole history of the West in microcosm out there. You can find sites with just hundreds of petroglyphs that are that were significant ceremonial sites from the 1300s to the 1600s. You can find a site of first Spanish contact where there's uh, an inscription from a 1581 expedition out there. You can uh, see Spanish villages from the 1800s um, and uh, coal mining towns from the early 1900s. But one of the little Spanish towns out there from uh, the 1800s is Puertocito, which uh, means like little gap or little doorway. Uh, um, there's a gap in the hills out there, and it is such a neat area because there's like an old windmill that's falling apart. There's buildings that look like they were built in the early 1900s, and they've just been kept up just well enough to still be functional. And a uh, lot of stacked rock um, uh, building materials. But there was a guy who lived out there, and when I read this story, I. I had no idea. I mean, I love that area and obsess over that area. There's a ghost town out there called Hagen that my son is named after. Um, uh, 
when I read this story, I was not expecting to find a story of Puerto Cito in this book. This is by the state, former state historian Robert Torres. It's called UFOs over Galisteo and other stories of New Mexico's history. There's this account in here of a guy named Andrew P. Morris, and he was a freed black man uh, who had, had uh, apparently gr uh, grown up somewhere, somewhere east in slavery, um, made it out here and just had nothing but legal trouble the entire time he was here. And now, I don't know what this guy was like or, or uh, what he was up to or if he was up to anything. Um, it sounds like, to me, like he was just trying to make a go of staying alive in New Mexico in a time when that was really difficult for anybody um, who uh, wasn't really familiar with this place um, and probably would have been really difficult for him. And it seems it was because he was just arrested over and over again. Everywhere he went in New Mexico, he, in uh, Rio Rebo County in uh, 1890, he gets arrested for cutting fences, which maybe that was something he was doing because he just... Uh, you know, was, was grazing cattle or something. Who, who knows, the, the details on this stuff are so sketchy. But he was uh, arrested later on for assault, served a two-year sentence in the territorial penitentiary. And um, in, uh, when the, the uh, prison records in 1895 said he was 35, uh, five feet tall, five, five inches, weighed 134 pounds. His right leg was amputated. Uh, just below the knee, and he was missing parts of the second and third fingers of his left hand. In his mugshot, he's like covering up his hand, like he's kind of uh, embarrassed about about it all. He looks he looks friendly. He doesn't, uh, <laughs> you know, he looks like a cool guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's got a handkerchief draped over his left hand, and it just seems like the the people who uh, controlled the timber and railroad interests in the area were just always after this guy. But he finally settled down in Puerto Cito and seemed to have, be doing okay there. But, um, but no, it was the same exact thing. It, you know, it just more trouble followed him, followed him wherever he was. He, in 1906, he wrote to the governor from Puerto Cito and uh, complained about a local gang that was harassing him. And um, then that was kind of the last thing that was was ever heard of him, but you know, his story gives just like an interesting little glimpse into like just how difficult it must have been just to live and exist in New Mexico uh, as a black person at the time. And uh, it's it just seems kind of sad. There's so few details. There's there's very little about him. Even in, in this book, there's only maybe four pages about him. Um, and uh, there's there's not very much else about it. The penitentiary punishment record book shows he was confined in a dark cell for periods of two to three days on at least four occasions. It sounds awful. His offenses range from back talk and insolence to possessing ink, pen, and pencil without permission. I mean, come on. But um, but you can go out to Puerto Cito today, and it's still there, and it's about half lived in. Once in a while, it goes up for sale, but there's like apparently no water on the property, so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you got to bring bring all that in, but it's just so interesting to look around at that little sleepy place, and uh, and and just think of of the history that that contained of of uh, him him living there and and uh, what what all that entailed and what all it says about uh, uh, attitudes toward minorities in New Mexico at the time. So in the late 19th century, the uh, the railroad came to New Mexico, and that kind of started to uh, once again change the landscape in a in a major way. In 1881, it came to Albuquerque, um, and in fact, it started, it, it was the impetus for the founding of Albuquerque uh, as we would understand it today. Um, 
Old Town Albuquerque was where we know Old Town is today. It was actually considered a separate municipality from the town that came, uh, sprang up around the railroad tracks, which is where downtown Albuquerque is today. Um, and a number of African Americans came uh, because of the railroad, uh, bringing people out here, um, sometimes working for the railroad system, sometimes for the, uh, the industries that uh, developed in its wake. And so that was, as Newtown Albuquerque began to grow, African Americans were there as well. Um, however, it was, although, although, it, uh, although Newtown is often kind of characterized as a place with maybe less racism than other parts of the country, uh, and New Mexico as a whole is considered maybe as having had less racism at that time than other places in the United States, um, there was certainly a, a fair amount of discrimination and uh, segregation in businesses here. Um, however, not in the schools, interestingly enough. Um, there was never any sort of separate but equal scheme for uh, the schools in Albuquerque, uh, and nor uh, the University of New Mexico. Um, how, and uh, I think as a result of this, Albuquerque wound up adopting one of the first civil rights ordinances in the United States because there wasn't the same kind of entrenched uh, institutional resistance that you, uh, you would see in, in, especially like in the Deep South, that sort of thing. Um, the story of how that civil rights ordinance came to be, I, I found pretty interesting. It came about earlier than most places. Um, it started at the University of New Mexico, as a matter of fact. In 1947, a man named George Long, can we get to George Long? Okay, so this is uh, George Long. He was a veteran of World War II, um, and during his time in the Pacific Theater, he met a reporter named Ernie Pyle, um, who you may have heard of. He lived here in Albuquerque. He was a, a world-famous writer uh, during his lifetime, um, and they became friends. Uh, George Long and Ernie Pyle became friends uh, while serving in the Pacific. And Ernie Pyle was well known for his love of Albuquerque, and in his dispatches from the war, he would often refer to his longing to return to his little home with the white picket fence um, and the view of Mount Taylor from one side and the view of the Sandia Mountains from the other, which is where the, uh, the Ernie Pyle Library is today. And George Long was apparently convinced. And so when he uh, got out of the army and was, uh, received his GI Bill benefits, um, he came to Albuquerque to attend the University of New Mexico and study political science. In, in those days, um, there was a bar across the street from UNM. Uh, it was a bar and barbecue restaurant called Oklahoma Joe's. Uh, it's right about where the 7-Eleven is on, uh, on Central and University now. Um, and it was known for being one of these businesses that was very discriminatory. Um, George Long decided that uh, he was going to make a stand against that. And so he grabbed a reporter from the New Mexico Lobo, which was the name that the Daily Lobo had before it became Daily. Um, and they went over there and uh, attempted to uh, get a seat. And sure enough, they were refused service. Um, they were told, well, you can't come in the front door. You can come in the back door. And if you want to eat here, you can eat in the kitchen. 
So then they came back to the university and um, the Lobo printed the story of that the next day. And there was an immediate student outcry against this and calls for a boycott of Oklahoma Joes. Um, it reached the point that uh, students came to the, uh, the, the Associated Students of the University of New Mexico, kind of the, the student council at the time, and they asked UNM to adopt a, uh, basically a civil rights, or, uh, civil rights statement saying that they would, um, as a university, they would stand against any uh, segregation or discrimination on the basis of race, color, or creed. The um, ASUNM at that time uh, refused to do it because they said it was not very important. Um, and this, uh, the, the next day there was an article in the paper and that again caused an even greater amount of student outcry, um, forcing ASUNM then to go into a special meeting where they started talking about uh, having a boycott where the, the students who showed up basically forced this issue. Um, Oklahoma Joe, by the way, uh, almost immediately reversed course. He sent a letter to the, uh, the New Mexico Lobo stating, this guy's name is uh, Joe Feinsilver, he stated, any university statement is welcome at my establishment regardless of color, nationality, or religion, and that he had only refused service to George Long because... Uh, he understood that it was against the UNM Greek fraternity policy, um, who all hung out at his uh, at his bar. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so he he did he did capitulate. Um, meanwhile, the uh, the ASUNM um, student council decided to uh, that they would not adopt a statement of support for the boycott, but would instead put it up to a student vote. And on October 22nd, 1947, uh, the students of UNM voted in favor of a boycott statement. Um, they, vo they voted three to one in favor of it, stating that they would uh, support any, any boycott against a business that discriminated against a UNM student for any reason of, uh, of race, class, or color. And I read that the student group a few months later boycotted a Walgreens downtown. Yeah, so the next year that boycott came out in force against a Walgreens that was refusing service to African Americans. And in fact, that caused uh, Walgreens nationally to uh, change their... Um, official policy and, and state that they would no longer discriminate against uh, people. You don't hear about the racist history of Walgreens much. That's <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, so sticking with, uh, with education, I just want to um, drop in a couple of stories okay. uh, uh, set in Las Cruces, because things were a little bit different. Things are a little bit different in Las Cruces. <laughs> yes. Um, so I just want to tell you a little bit about Clara Bell Williams. Uh, her name was Clara Bell Drisdale. Um, she was born in 1885 in Plum, Texas. So the, so the railroad, you know, brought, brought her this away. Um, uh, and she attended the Prairie View Normal and Independent College in Prairie View, Prairie View A&M um, and graduated valedictorian in 1908. She got married um, and became Clara Bell Williams and settled in New Mexico. Um, took classes in Chicago, moved to New Mexico, and enrolled in NMSU. 
1928. But her professors, many of them would not allow her to sit in the class, to, to take class. So I don't know if you if you um, if you saw Hidden Figures and you know that that you know waiting until the end of the you know taking classes at night because you can't take class during the day. So that you know getting arrested because you had a pen pencil in your pocket. I mean you know we can kind of see that there's a connection there. She sat outside the classroom to take notes. Um, that's how she got her Bachelor of Arts degree, um, and she got that in 1937. She was 52, and she taught at the Booker T. Washington School for more than 20 years. Um, uh, and then she, she taught kids during the day, and she caught, taught their parents at night who were, who were first learning to read. Um, the English department uh, is named after her now, the um, Clara Bell Williams Hall that was uh, dedicated in 2005. Um, there's a street named after her. Um, she passed away in 1994. She was 108. Um, she is. amazing. So she had an incredible life. And that, that is a picture, a picture of her in, in her youth. Um, and NMSU uh, issued a formal apology for the discrimination she expected, she uh, she uh, experienced. But maybe she had maybe she had five children, but her three sons became surgeons. So I was going to mention that um, that one of her sons uh, was a first uh, lieutenant uh, in the in the Air Force, and he was a, a Tuskegee Airman. Um, so uh, so that's pretty incredible to become this uh, military aviator in a time where there was extreme segregation. Um, this is a, si a side note, but just to give you an idea of, of what it was like, I, my, my great uncle is one of the Atlanta Nine who integrated the police force in Atlanta. So it was nine black men who had served in, in war, and like my, my great uncle did. Um, they were given wooden guns to patrol the streets of Atlanta. They were, sit, they were in a classroom with their white counterparts. On the other side of the room, they were getting the exact same lesson. But when they graduated, they were given wood, wooden guns to go out to, to patrol. So just so you, you have some idea of like the absurdity of, of, trying, of trying to move forward. Uh, anyway, um, uh, he became Dr. James uh, Williams. Um, he became one of MLK's physicians. He moved to Chicago and became one of MLK's physicians. He also um, petitioned JFK um, with other doctors to, um, to remove federal funding for any hospital that would not allow um, integrated health care. So he was instrumental in, in making sure that, that everybody, anyone who, who was ill um, or for any reason could be, could be um, cared for. So that, that's one of, one of her sons. And so, you, so she, he had, she had five kids. Right. And he died in uh, 2016. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a there was a, um, a, a tribute to him last year um, in at NMSU. It was a, a music. Um, I think some some piece of music was written about him, and it was performed, you know, in in honor of him. So, the, you know, this is this is a very prestigious family, um, and it started it started with with Clara, and it continues on. So that's. 
that's really great. Um, but anyway, that's that's the the mother mother son story I wanted to cool. to tell. Excellent. Oh, oh wait. Um, I just want to throw this in um, that in uh, 2007 he received the Congressional Gold Medal of Honor. Okay. So um, yeah, yeah, pretty exciting. And from um, Tuskegee Airmen, yes. surgeon to sports, Ooh. where a surgeon might be needed. That's our, yeah. Okay. There's the connected Yeah. So good. sports um, were an interesting field in Albuquerque and New Mexico. And there's two things, of course, as with every subject, there's so much to talk about. But two things we want to talk about. Um, and the first one is a fight. So boxing was really big. It still is big, but it was really big in New Mexico for a while, and the heavyweight title champion was Jack Johnson. Have you guys heard of Jack Johnson? And so, yeah, there's Jack Johnson and his posse and um, his other fighters. Yes, so boxing was integrated, but it was integrated um, and used in a way often to promote ideas of racial superiority. So there would often be a fight against a black boxer and a white boxer, and the white boxer would be the great white hope that could beat the champion, Jack Johnson. So Jack Johnson did a lot of these fights, and Las Vegas wanted to host it because they wanted to make a name for themselves, and they you know, wanted to be a destination. So they spent a lot of money advertising and thought they would get, I think it was 17,000 people coming, and it ended up being 5,000, so a little bit less. Um, but they came to see Jack Johnson fight the great white hope, in quotes, um, Jim Flynn. And this was just no match. Um, they're crazily, back then they were allowed to have 45 bouts. That would be just hamburger meat at the end of that. Um, and it was at, yeah, it was at round nine that Jack Johnson beat Flynn. And Flynn was using illegal headbutts to like, like these vicious headbutts, and the New Mexico State Police Chief ended up stepping in to say you can't use that anymore. Um, so yeah, Jack Johnson ended up winning in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Um, where, 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 where is he in that photograph? He's the one that um, he's sitting next to his lady friend there in the front. That's that's his oh, his yeah. girlfriend. Um, and I think he's to the left of her. I can't quite see. The, that yeah. picture came from the uh, William Katz Mario book. Found it. Okay, I'll take a look at that later. So according to this book, The uh, African-American History of New Mexico, edited by Bruce Glasser, they, um, people, were, people interviewed in New Mexico remarked that everyone was aware of the race difference in this fight, but that it was not a major issue. Um, they agreed that Johnson was rightly declared the winner, uh, they were not bothered that uh, Jack Johnson's wife was white, which was a major sticking point in other parts of the country at this time. Uh, and they did not regard Flynn as a white hope. So that, I thought that was kind of cool, like a good, a good statement maybe about um, racial attitudes in New Mexico at the time. Like it was, I certainly would never say that um, there was like some kind of enlightened view here, but it was certainly not as entrenched as it, as it might have been in other parts of the country. Maybe the, and maybe the, the laws and things in Las Vegas are a little bit different. I mean, you know, the Rough Riders came through, you know, Teddy Roosevelt had his uh, first hangout with his Rough Riders there, and, you know, the, right. the, the Grand Hotel. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a fancy big town. <laughs> that, that's so, true, yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so um, the railroad came through in 1881. In uh, 1927, uh, Route 66 and the national highway system began. And that started a whole new era for travel in the United States as a whole and um, for people of all uh, races uh, traveling across the country. Of course, um, traveling across the country if you were, if you were black meant a lot of, um, you had to be very aware about the places you were going, um, even in a place that might not have the kind of uh, racism uh, like you might find in Missouri or something like that or Mississippi. Um, there are obviously places like Oklahoma Joe's where black patrons were not welcome. And so in 1936, a man named Victor Hugo Green, pictured here, created a guidebook called the uh, Negro Motorists Guidebook. Um, and it was, a, uh, it was basically a listing of safe places in each state, in each city, that uh, black motorists could go to and be assured that they would not you know, get kicked out or face violence um, from white owners or what have you. And it's actually, it's a very interesting um, pamphlet to look through. They, they, it was produced from 1936 to 1966. Um, it's got every state and almost every city that you can think of. So, you know, depending on where you're from, you can look in there and, and see what was considered like the safe and friendly places to go to in your town. And there were, there were several in Albuquerque. And one of the most prominent was a restaurant called Aunt Brenda's Barbecue. Can we bring that one up? So this was located at 406 North Arno Street. And Brenda's name was actually Virginia Balu. Her father was a homesteader in Albuquerque. Um, well, in the part of Albuquerque that wasn't Albuquerque back then. He owned a bunch of land right around Wyoming and Lomas, where that is today, and he had a ranch there. And so she um, had this barbecue joint, which was apparently a, a linchpin of the black community at that time. Um, her father, Henry Ballou, uh, he realized that Albuquerque was going to be expanding outward um, as more and more people came, and that eventually, at some point, his ranch was going to be kind of surrounded by this, uh, by this city. So he proactively took steps to um, donate it to the Fraternal Aid Society, which was a group of uh, black business people who were committed to helping each other. And they came up with a plan that was centered around the idea that um, black people in Albuquerque needed to be able to get housing on the, on the same level as uh, people of other uh, races. And at that point, it was hard for African Americans to get home loans. It was hard to um, even for that matter, like move to a different part of town than the like the more traditionally black parts of town. Um, due to housing covenants, it would often actually be written into an agreement when you bought a house that said you couldn't um, you couldn't even rent it to someone who was the wrong color. So he and the Fraternal Aid Society drew up plans for a huge uh, subdivision 
um, that would cater to black clientele. Um, unfortunately, he, uh, he died before he was able to kind of get that off the ground, but he deeded that land to his daughter, Virginia, who's pictured here, who set about taking steps to make it a reality. She ran into a lot of um, problems doing this. Um, she, uh, she, one, of, one of the big issues that she specifically mentioned was that a lot of the real estate deals in town uh, went down at the country club area, which was very much a segregated place at that point. Um, it's about 1951 or so. And she couldn't find a contractor who was willing to, uh, to build houses for her planned community there. Um, she actually went out to Arizona and found a contractor named Jones. I'm sorry, I don't have uh, his name, his first name listed there. And he helped her um, build these houses, but unfortunately, in order to fund the building of the houses, uh, she wound up selling off a bunch of the land that had originally been intended for the purpose of this development. Um, and in the end, they were only... So the original development was going to be uh, 24 blocks. Um, in the end, they were only able to do uh, two full blocks of um, 22 total houses, uh, 16 on Virginia Avenue and six on Vermont Avenue, um, right around the Lomas area. However, they were able to make that work. It was called the East End Edition, and um, a number of African-American people were able to find homes in a, in a, uh, in a nice community at a time where, uh, where segregation was still very much in, in effect for the real estate world in Albuquerque. Um, later on, as uh, the civil rights movement um, continued to make advances, and that no longer became, this kind of segregation in real estate no longer became as prevalent. Um, the East End Edition no longer was as, I guess, vital a place. Like, it, it was, there were people living there, but it was no longer, like, the only place um, African Americans could get homes. So the, the population sort of dispersed more, and as that population there in the East End Edition aged, um, the houses sold, sometimes to businesses such as, as car lots. And in fact, if you go to that area now, there's not a whole lot left of the East End Edition um, because it's sort of all been kind of consumed by these, uh, these car lots. But there are some of the original houses left still, and there is actually a sign uh, that indicates the, uh, the historic importance of that area. Um, another family that I wanted to talk about is the, uh, the Powdrell family. And if you've ever uh, had any interest in barbecue in this town, this suddenly occurs to me, this is actually the third barbecue restaurant that I've mentioned tonight, with, uh, starting with Oklahoma Joe's. But <laughs> barbecue is important, I think, is the, is the, is the thing here. So in, uh, in 1950, uh, a man named Pete Powdrell and his wife Catherine came to New Mexico from West Texas uh, after having um, dealt with uh, segregation in the schools and decided that that was no longer the life that they wanted for their children. They had relatives living here in Albuquerque who said that it was actually better here. And so uh, Pete Powdrell and his wife came out, worked a number of odd jobs. And then with the support of the La Mesa Presbyterian Church, 
Um, Pete Poudrell opened a barbecue restaurant in 1962 in the Southwest Broadway area. It, uh, he was 48 at the time, actually, um, when he started on this. That first restaurant lasted only a few months, but uh, it was enough for him to decide that was the, uh, the life he wanted for himself, and so he pursued other restaurants, and eventually uh, there were four Powdrell's barbecue restaurants in town. Um, that number is now two, and uh, you can still go to them. He died actually in 2007 at the age of 84, but he had 11 kids and a lot of grandkids, and there are, um, the, the Powdrells have become a very like important, influential uh, family in Albuquerque today. And I thought um, that might be a good time to, uh, Kyron, are you still here? Could you, could you come on up? Um, yeah, I'm gonna give you my seat. So Rita Powdrell is in the audience uh, tonight, actually. Oh, she did? Okay. Well, um, she is the chair of the Albuquerque African American Museum. And uh, this is uh, Kyron Worrell, uh, who's on the, uh, the board of that museum. So I thought maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on with the museum. And Good evening. Uh, my name is Kyron Worrell. I am on the board for the African American Museum and Cultural Center of New Mexico. I'm actually the newest board member. I've been working with them for probably the past two months. Uh, I think this is very, a very important conversation to have. Um, so the mission of the museum is to spread awareness uh, and highlight the contrib contributions of people of African descent uh, in the entire state of New Mexico. So uh, this was, as soon as I saw this, the invite for this, I was like, yes, I'm, I'll be there. Um, so, yeah. Is, was there? Yeah, I, I just uh, wanted to know if you could maybe tell us a little bit about what, what is the African American Museum? What, what, uh, how is it developing at this point? So it started in about 2002. Um, so basically right now, uh, since its inception, we've been trying to kind of highlight and catalog any, any and everything, any history pertaining to uh, African Americans in New Mexico. So uh, that includes doing interviews. Uh, uh, we actually do have an exhibit uh, right now at the African American Performing Arts Center. Um, it's, it'll be up through the end of the month, I believe, maybe a little longer, so I would hope that you all would, if you have the time to go, to go check it out. Um, so uh, so up, up until this point, we've been kind of uh, just gathering any information, speaking to families of descendants, of people that, that have been in, in New Mexico. Uh, my family arrived here in, in the 1940s. Um, so, and, and our, our, our mission is to kind of just highlight uh, all that history and kind of have it in one, one central place. So what sort of exhibit, what sort of uh, things are, are at the exhibit? What, what could people expect to see? So at the, as this particular exhibit, uh, it, it kind of centers around entrepreneurship in, in New Mexico. So you'll see exhibits, uh, information about various businesses that were started uh, throughout the state. Uh, some here in Albuquerque, a lot of them in in uh, southern New Mexico, uh, their catering businesses, uh, 
mail parcel delivery businesses, water. Uh, so that right now, uh, for the for that particular exhibit uh, location, that's that's what it's centered around. There's also an exhibit at the uh, Holocaust Museum, and I have actually not seen that one yet. So, um, yeah. Was, was, oh, go ahead. And uh, so you, you yourself are, are a researcher, right? You've uh, done a fair amount of research for this project? Correct. So, no, I haven't done any okay. research uh, specific for, the, for what they have now, but going forward I will be uh, help, uh, hopefully kind of contributing to, uh, to that information. My, my focus has been uh, Albuquerque specifically um, because, uh, of course, I'm from here. My family's been here uh, for 70 years. Um, and I, and I think it's a. I think one thing that's important uh, when we talk about the history of New Mexico, the African American history, it tends to center around Black New Mexico, uh, and rightfully so. Uh, anyone who knows of Black New Mexico, uh, it was a town created uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, Francis Boyer uh, uh, essentially walked here uh, from Georgia and, and created this town uh, near Roswell. Um, so. Uh, with that, my my focus is on Albuquerque uh, because this is this is where I'm from. Um, also, there, there there's a lot of information that uh, I kind of came across that I find just mind blowing. Uh, one of those things uh, we all know who Madam C.J. Walker is. I, I would assume uh, she's probably the first uh, uh, African American millionaires. Or she part her part part of her business. As far as workforce actually started here in Albuquerque, uh, her brother uh, Owen Breedlove Jr. moved here in 1883. He married a woman by the name of Lucy Crockett. They had four daughters. Um, uh, Owen was known as as a deserter, so he kind of left her uh, oh. to left Lucy to, to kind of watch fend for, for fend for herself. And from there, uh, the family moved to I believe it was Denver, and that's where. Uh, Madam C.J. Walker kind of met up with 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 her, uh, Lucy and her and her nieces, and so if you were to go and and Google Madam C.J. Walker, you'll you'll find which is one of the most notable famous pictures of her is her in the car, uh, she's in the driver's seat. So the the woman sitting next to her that's actually her niece Angela Breedlove, and she was born right here right here in Albuquerque in 1890. So that that's one of the oh, things wow. that that's amazing to me. Another thing is. Uh, has anyone heard of Richard B. Spikes? Uh, he's a famous African-American inventor. Uh, he invented uh, the beer cake tap, so the thing you use to get beer out of the cake, he invented that. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> he, <laughs> he invented uh, his own version of the turn signal, uh, which was an industry, industry, industry standard at the time. He invented his own version of the automatic gear shift for, for cars. But he actually lived here in Albuquerque, uh, between 1910 and 1912, and while he was here, he he had he was working as a barber, but he also was inventing. So, and that's and these are things that people few people know about. And I, I just find just amazing. Very cool. Yeah, excellent. Okay. Well, I think this is probably a good time to maybe turn turn the microphone over to you guys for for questions and and stories and that sort of thing. So, thank you, Kyron, for you. for sharing that with us. Thank you. So you, you'll have to walk up here, I guess. <laughs> you know, if, if anybody has a, has a question or wants to, to share a story or make a comment, I mean, this would be a, just come on up, basically. Hi. Hi, Nancy Burse. 
I'm glad that uh, you made it tonight. I've been attending some of those, and it's wonderful. Um, because we, in our own history, uh, in the International District, uh, which includes part of that East End edition, have uh, really found a lot of things out, which includes why is Eubank called Eubank? Because there is an actual Eubank uh, that came after the Civil War, was a freed black man, and came, made a deal with some Spanish land trusts for some property. Why way out in the desert and not in Old Town or by the river, we don't know. But that's what he was able to get and decided to tell people back home, Civil War's over, you're free, you can have your own property, I've got some incredible amount of land, yeah, we need to build some irrigation and stuff, but what I'll do is I'll give you an acre or two that you can build your home at and have for your family if you contribute to the rest of the goods that we're going to have. And there's this city we think is springing up called Albuquerque that we are going to take our food to. Well, the western boundary of that uh, was Eubank, which is also the boundary of, uh, we call it, through Mr. Owsley, not Baloo, okay. uh, the East End Edition. And he picked up some of the rest that you see early on and developed that from Wyoming, gosh, almost to Louisiana. Uh, on the north side of Lomas. Um, and some of it in the La Mesa area, you'll see the plats that say the East End Edition on your title paperwork. But uh, the conflicting story is, is we've never been able to find out about this Mr. Eubank. Uh, and in the meantime, Kirtland Air Force Base, as it was developing, had a Colonel Eubank who was very instrumental in bringing in uh, jets and airplanes. Actually, Albuquerque had over six or seven airports that finally all kind of fell away. And then the, the Kirtland uh, Air Force Base is a conglomeration of three of those airports coming together uh, to be one huge one. Um, and that was Colonel Eubank. So there's the conflicting white story of how we get <laughs> Eubank Avenue versus the older undocumented one uh, of uh, Eubank who came out and did uh, a lot of the ranching and some other things and, and brought that into Albuquerque and supported a lot of people. There's still many, many descendants of um, Mr. Owsley's project, the East End Edition that live here, uh, because when he started to, when the daughter started to sell it off, she also was very intentional in selling it to black people. She couldn't find a builder, but maybe there was a black family who did build houses or woodwork, woodworkers, and they could swap services to build homes. 
and they carried them on. But uh, so we still have those that are still in the area. Uh, and we've documented that in our international district book that we have. Cool. So there's a lot of neat yeah. stuff out there. And we, uh, we're very proud that the uh, African American Performing <laughs> Arts Center, which is at the fairgrounds, uh, is in the international district. Cool. Thanks Thank for sharing. You. Thank you. You're absolutely right. I, I, I gave his name as Henry Balu, but it is actually Outley, and her name was Balu. I just wanted to uh, dovetail off of what the last speaker was saying, um, which I was really intrigued to hear because some of the very recent history that I began to learn about the International District and waves of African migration into the United States were centered in that same Eastern Edition uh, area of Albuquerque. Uh, which is where Catholic Charities um, had conducted their refugee resettlement program here in Albuquerque. This was, I worked there about 10 years ago, and I think it's really important for all of us to consider that uh, because of Albuquerque's status as a place where affordable housing is available, where there are um, entry-level jobs, and where there was a kind of service infrastructure, thanks to the Catholic Church and its presence here, um, Albuquerque for years was a very welcoming place for a small uh, fraction, but small but significant fraction of refugees who were, after years, uh, going through the resettlement process, which is its own <laughs> monumentally complicated story, um, refugees from West Africa, so Liberia and Sierra Leone, uh, both countries which were profoundly affected by civil strife. Um, and so families that had been living there for years wait in refugee camps waiting for safe refuge were finally brought to Albuquerque and continue to make really important contributions here um, as part, a lot of them have started from receiving little to no um, education beyond basic literacy and elementary studies to becoming uh, doctors, nurses, um, working in the medical field, to working in the education field. One of my former students is pursuing a law degree. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that and dovetail in uh, some of the previous speakers' comments, which are really important. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for that. Um, we had a, a friend who couldn't make it tonight who is a first-generation Haitian-American who settled in New Mexico in, in the neighborhood that you're talking about, and um, she couldn't make it tonight. And I'm, I'm hoping that, that we'll, we'll do a follow-up because it would be really great to go, to go forward and, and include um, refugees that have settled in, in Albuquerque and, and just the continuation of, of, of migration. So that, that's on, that's on our, our list for sure. Absolutely. Uh, just to reiterate, you know, all these things are, uh, are continuing. You know, there's so much that can be said about any of the things we talked about tonight uh, that wouldn't 
possibly even fit in the two-hour space that we talked about, as well as things that we had to we had to miss. Like um, we didn't talk about Blacktum at all, and that's like an amazing story. And we just don't have the kind of time tonight to really to give it its due. But um, if anybody else would like to come up and uh, we got Q and A or, or comments or anything you'd like. <laughs> yeah, thank you all for being here. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much.